Well, we're so glad that you're joining us uh, here this morning, whether you're here at Ajax or in Bowmanville and Port Perry. We want to take a moment. We're celebrating with you at your new facility. Let's give them a hand this morning for that amazing miracle. Just so thankful. So good. We're getting reports that there's no room for parking. So giddy up. Here we go. Uh, every month, the elders of this church gather. We eat together and we pray together and then we deal with the governance of the church. And we always make sure that we do have time to eat together, to be in community. And usually we get something like Indian food or Lebanese food but, or maybe some pizza. We never sort of get classic fast food at all. Uh, but because of a timing thing last month, it just happened. And, and so Kathy, one of the EAs that works with Dave and myself, ordered A&W. And, and so it all arrived and it was fine. And we started opening the bag and then something happened. It would seem that almost every single one of the burgers was a Beyond Meat burger. And so there was consternation in the room. Um, you, if you don't know what, what I'm talking about, there's a great revolution taking place right now with A&W and Tim Hortons where there's all these vegetarian op options that they are promising us are as good, if not better, than, than meat. Now, we have one vegetarian on our, on our board, so we always have a vegetarian option, but it was sort of unusual that almost it all was vegetarian. Dave Adams was in the corner crying like a little child because uh, he has an aversion to vegetables. We had a clinical crisis team in to help them through the moment. Um, so anyways, we, we were like confused. Maybe it's not a Beyond Meat option. Maybe it's just the packaging. And, and we started eating and oh yes, it was a Beyond Meat moment. So um, so uh, later next week, we, we had a meeting and Kathy was there and we were like, what's up with, um, what was up with the uh, Uber Eats order? She's like, what are you talking about? We're like, well, um, there was a lot of vegetarian options. And she's like, no, there was only one. We're like, no, no, Kathy, there, there were many vegetarian options. And she's like, no, no. And she said it was the Beyond Beyond Meat. And we're like, uh, uh, yes, exactly. She's like, no, Beyond Meat means like more meat, mega meat, grand, huge meat, like American portion meat. We're like, no, this isn't Texas. This is like some vegan moment. No, you've totally, she's like, no, no, I read it online. She pulled out her laptop and she realized she had sped read, of course, the definition and skipped over the vegetarian moment. Now we fired her. No, 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 totally joking. Uh, sort of. No, no, I'm not. Um, no, no. We, so we, we laughed about this last week. And as she was telling the story, as we were telling the story with each other, I went, oh, thank you, God. What a profound, simple illustration to help us in week two of Galatians. See, the non-vegetarian and the vegetarian option came in the same bag. They were both served with fries. They had the exact same topping. They're served on the exact same bun. They look the same. Oh, but they do not taste the same. And you find out the difference when you read the details and you actually experience the product. Now, why does this matter? Because in the book of Galatians, we're trying to work out what is the true gospel and what is the false gospel. And as we heard last week, they look absolutely so similar. It is hard to tell the difference until you really pay attention and you taste and see, which is right and which is wrong. We found out last week that the book of Galatians was written somewhere between 49 and 55 AD. That means this is one of the earliest books in the New Testament, 16 to 22 years after Jesus' death and physical resurrection. Paul has established a group of churches in what we, he called Galatia, what we call Turkey. After he does that, he leaves to go plant more churches. And then as he leaves, something terrible goes wrong. The crisis that we're in, involved in talking about is a gift to us. Why? 
Because less than two decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're beginning to see what Christianity is and what it is not. Now, if you were with us last week, as we read the first five verses, our whole faith was outlined right in the introduction. You know who God is. We get to know who Jesus is. We know Jesus actually is God. We know Jesus gave himself for us. We know Jesus actually physically came back from the dead. We know we have been given the gifts of grace and peace only through Jesus. We know we've been rescued from sin and the world and the devil. And the underlining theme we heard was you can't earn this. You can't buy this. You can't steal this. You can't seduce this. You can't con this. God has to to give this to you, and God does give it to us because God is love. Amen, anyone? That's the gospel. Or like I shared in my daughter's devotional book from last week, God created it, we broke it, Jesus showed up and fixed it. That's the Christian gospel. But after first five, uh, the first five verses, Paul turns his attention to the false teachers that are causing the crisis. Remember, they're saying he's not an apostle, that he's an imposter, and he has been accused of giving a false gospel. Now their goal was simple, they wanted to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul, or, or Paul and Peter, or Paul and the other apostles, so they could prove their gospel was right and he was a fraud. And he responded, remember in Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished, I'm blown away, I cannot believe that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. These false teachers were called Judaizers. And they posed a profoundly difficult problem for the church because they were Orthodox Jews who were not opposing the claims of the church. They were Jewish people who actually believed Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus was the Christ, Jesus was the Son of God, he was equal with the Father, actually he was God, and they actually believed he physically rose from the dead. Now, if you hung out with someone like that, you're like, well, then you're a Christian. I mean, you could sign the Apostles' Creed. All of that is right. And then they said, ah, but you're missing one component. They started saying, oh, you have to believe all that stuff about Jesus. Oh, and dot, 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 fine print. You have to be fundamentally religiously Jewish too. Then God will forgive you of your sins and rescue you from the world, death, and Satan. So the battle lines were drawn. Paul has already taught the church, Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus doesn't need our help in the salvation process because we have nothing to bring to the table. The false gospel is Jesus plus, sorry, Jesus plus anything becomes nothing. In other words, if you start adding things, suddenly you also are a co-savior with Jesus and everything falls apart. In other words, Paul's saying you can't prove yourself to God. You don't have the power to remove sin or overcome death or face down Satan or stop being worldly. You think religiously faithful Jewish experience will do that for us? Hold on, the law shows us our need for our Savior, shows us who God is, but it shows us even our sin, but it doesn't make us okay. In other words, if you try to help save yourself, you're buying into a false gospel. Now, Paul is far from done. He once again looks squarely at these false teachers and says, you're dangerous, you're wrong, you're damnable. And Paul at this moment Interestingly, he doesn't pull more theology out. He doesn't pull out more biblical history. He doesn't do an, do an outright confrontation with the leaders. Unexpectedly and suddenly and brilliantly, he tells a story. He gives the very first recorded autobiography of his own journey. And through his personal story, pre and post Jesus moments, it allows him to outline the true gospel and confront the false teachers and also comfort the church. So it reads like this in verse 11. I want you to know... Brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not from human origin. 
Now, now maybe you didn't catch it. He says, things are bad. All of you are wondering if I'm the real deal and you're listening to these other people. And I just want to say, brothers and sisters, we're still together. We're still family. We're still friends. Not all is lost, not yet. And, and, and let me say this again. I, I know these false teachers keep saying I, I made this up or I watered down the real thing and tried to convince you and give you something that's not fully true. But I need to reassure you that what I taught you and what I keep saying to you is not from me or another human being. This is from God himself. I did not receive this from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. There was no middleman. There was no angel giving me some book. There was no book I read. I didn't listen to a podcast. There was no debate I attended and got convinced. I met the physically risen Jesus. What I told you is from Jesus himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gave it to me directly. I, I wasn't dreaming. I wasn't high. I wasn't in a trance. I encountered Jesus and was taught by Jesus, and I was given the message by Jesus. Jesus is both the revealer and the revelation. And by the way, you remember my story, right? I mean, this, this was not to my advantage. I hated Jesus. I was doing everything in my power to destroy the movement that was in his name. And by the way, I had a sweet deal and my job was awesome and I was set for life. Verse 13, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism and the Jewish faith. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. You remember how savage I was? How religiously zealous and terroristic I was? How violent I was? I mean, I, I tried destroying all of you people. Now let's just stop. Hey, Sanctus Church, for a moment. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why did Saul, who became Paul, so hate the Christian movement? Like, why did he think it was da dangerous and evil and wrong? Well, there are three reasons. First, the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the favored one of God, the one the whole Old Testament was pointing to, the one that would fulfill the Jewish faith, the one that would restore the time of David and Solomon, was in their eyes supposed to show up in profound ways, cleanse their religious system, and in a political, military way, wipe out all the enemies of the Jewish people and restore the country and never let it be touched again. Well, Jesus didn't overcome the Romans, and he didn't restore Israel, and the corruption of the temple was still around, so he's got to be a fraud because the job description, according to us, he didn't fulfill. And then he started teaching stupid things like love your enemy. No, no, the Messiah is supposed to sh show up and wipe out the enemy. Then he starts saying crazy things like the kingdom of God is in you. No, it's not. The kingdom of God is the nation of Israel and you need to restore that. And you didn't do it, so you're a fraud. Problem one. Problem two. Jesus was executed and murdered on a cross. Now, if you've ever read your Old Testament, there's something about that that's interesting. Deuteronomy 21, 23. Anyone who hung on a pole is under God's curse. How in the world could God's appointed and chosen one be under God's curse and still accomplish his will. Impossible. Three, it's actually the idea of Jesus rising from the dead. Now in 2019, because most of us have grown up in the West or been exposed, most of us have the bias that we think, well, everyone believed in resurrection 2,000 years ago. This was totally what was common. Everyone believed it. And so this is just one myth out of many. No, 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 no. Not even close. Read historians, read scholars. The Christians, when they start claiming Jesus actually personally, physically came back from the dead, was absolutely, undeniably, unprecedented, period. Pagans did not believe in resurrection. Greeks and Romans 
It's not even in their thinking. The Egyptians have some zombification version, but it's not even in the same category. They didn't believe it at all. This, this was stupid, ludicrous, unheard of. As one of the great New Testament scholars in the last 50 years wrote, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was already known to be a lie, false. Many believed the dead were non-existent outside of the Jewish faith. <clears throat> no one believed in resurrection at all. Okay, so the Jews believe in resurrection, so we go, oh yeah, no, 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 no. Every Orthodox Jew <clears throat> who was a Pharisee believed in the resurrection. But they believed everyone would be resurrected at the end of time all at once, and then judgment would happen. So when Orthodox Jewish people, like former tax collectors or, or priests or, or fishermen, all start declaring that only one guy came back from the dead, they're all like, no, that violates a thousand years of Jewish thinking because we all know the resurrection's true, and we've got an insight the pagans don't have, but it happens to everyone at the end of time. And the Romans are still around, and they're still dying everywhere, and there's sin everywhere. So let me tell you, the idea that one person came back is not true. Here's what you got to catch. There was nothing in Jewish theology that taught one person would come back from the dead. So it didn't exist in Judaism. It didn't exist in Greek thinking, or Roman thinking, or Egyptian thinking. In other words, there is no oxygen for this fire to start, and yet a Amazingly, what happened? A huge fire showed up. It is impossible, historians say. And yet it took place. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit, who is fire, decided to show up anyway. Well, Saul's against all of this. And he views this as a cult version of Judaism, aberrant, cancerous. And so what does he do? He's there. Acts 8.1 says he's there when the first Christian is murdered, Stephen, and he gives approval. But he's far from done. Acts 9.1, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether man or woman, he would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. So on a 242-kilometer journey, this event, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, is one of the most significant in human history. A light from heaven flashed around Saul of Tarsus. Now we know from Acts that this happens at noonday. So in desert-like conditions at noonday, at the height of the sun, a light outshines the sun and blinds him basically. We know this is called the Shekinah presence of God, the, the glory of God. Now watch this. Who's in the middle of the glory of God? Jesus is in the middle of the glory of God. And that is the truth and beauty and majesty of Jesus. Jesus has to be more than a teacher and more than a prophet and more than a religious leader and more than a moral revolutionary because God doesn't change and God also doesn't share his glory with another. And yet Jesus is in the middle of God's glory, which means Jesus what? Is God. And the one who's standing in the glory of God speaks to Saul in Aramaic, not Hebrew, not Greek. He speaks in the language of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Can you imagine what Saul was thinking? Jesus from Nazareth is alive, and he's in the middle of Yahweh, Elohim, the great I Am's presence. So that means that everything I've thought and believed and held on to is just off the mark. I am undone. I am wrong. I'm, I'm going to die. I, I'm going to go to hell for this. And how does Jesus respond? With love. The mini-summary is found in Acts 6, 26, 16. Now get up. Stand to your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you've seen 
And I will rescue you from your own people and also from the Gentiles. And I will send you to them and to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So they will receive forgiveness of sins and be placed among those who are being sanctified, made holy by faith in me. Verse 13, you have heard about my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried destroying it. Oh, and verse 14. Oh, and I was advancing in the Jewish faith beyond many of people my own age. And it was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So here's what he says. Oh, you want to go there? You, you really want to have this conversation about religion and faithfulness and proving yourself to God? Well, fine. Let me just say this right up front. I'm not being a jerk when I'm saying it. Listen, this Jewish religious deal that you're claiming people have to have to actually become Christians. Uh, let me tell you, I, I've been there. I've done that. I actually got the Olympic gold medal. You're still in like not even AAA. You're with the little kids over here in kindergarten. And I'm telling you, it still doesn't work. I thought I loved God. I thought I represented God. I thought I served God. And though I, some of my theology was right, I missed the whole point. At the end of Paul's life, fighting, by the way, with the same false teachers in another city, he summarizes all of his credentials. It reads like this in Philippians 3, 4. If anyone else thinks they got reason to put confidence in their flesh, their good works, uh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, yep. Of the people of Israel, check. Tribe of Benjamin, you got it. A Hebrew of Hebrews, don't, don't forget it. In regard to the law, a Pharisee as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now we read that in 2019, I'm like, I don't get that list, that's weird. I know. But when you understand what it meant 2,000 years ago, or if you took this to an Orthodox Jew today, oh, they'd understand it. Here's how one pastor summarizes it. If there was ever a Jew who was steeped in Jewish Judaism, it was Paul. Circumcised on the eighth day, he, his body bore the badge and mark of one of God's chosen people. He was of the race of Israel. That is to say, he was a member of the nation that stood in a unique covenant relationship with God, and no other nation had this. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. We're like, well, who cares about that tribe? Well, actually, the tribe of Benjamin has a profoundly unique place in Israel's history. The tribe of Benjamin is actually the tribe where the first king of Israel comes from, Saul. Benjamin, the man, the founder of the tribe, is, one of the, is actually the only patriarch born in the promised land. And not only that, when actually Israel went into battle, when they went to war, Benjamin actually led the charge, and the war chant was this, after you, O Benjamin, we go. In the lineage of Paul, he's not just an Israelite or a Jew. He's of the aristocracy of Israel. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is to say, he's not one of those Jews that moved to Rome or, or to Spain and can't speak Hebrew anymore. He knows God's voice. He knows God's language. He's not been corrupted. He, he is also a Pharisee. That is to say, he is not only a devout Jew, he's actually called a separated one who forswore all normal activity to dedicate his life to keeping the law with such a meticulous ability that he was blameless. In other words, Paul understood Judaism at its best, at its height, at its depth. He knew it from the inside. He knew it from the outside. He knew everything it could bring to a human being. So he says to these so-called Christians, these Judaizers and all the churches listening to the nattering of these false. So you think religiously strict Judaism plus Jesus is what this deal is all about? Well, none of you could touch me, and I already did it, and you missed the point. This is like a dad who's older now, who has a teenage son who's making every single mistake 
that he made when he was a teenager, begging his teenage son not to go through the pain because it's actually not worth it. In Philippians 3.7, he says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. So he's still confronting these false teachers. He's still saying, you've missed it. And then in verse 15, basically this is what he's saying. Here's the background. Do you remember the prophet Jeremiah? Pretty big deal in Judaism. Pretty significant. He says, oh, by the way, his story, my story. But when God, don't you love when that phrase is in the Bible? But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among non-Jews, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't even go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. I went to Arabia, and later I went to Damascus. So after such a shock, not, not days or months, and actually we find out he goes away for three years with very little community and solitude and silence to begin to process his whole life through the lens of Jesus. And not only that, he begins to process the whole Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And after that three-year period, everyone ready? This is what happens next. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. Can you imagine this Starbucks meeting? Peter and Paul meet for the first time to compare stories. There's Paul, formerly Saul, Peter, the fisherman, the leader of the church, talking back and forth. Peter filling in so many blanks. The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection. Remember, you might not know this, Peter is the primary source for the book of Mark. Can you hear them talking? Peter saying, you wouldn't, Paul, it was like, when he sat down and he said that Sermon on the Mount thing, it was just like fire. We just didn't know what to do. When Lazarus was dead for four days and he literally walked up and wept and said, Lazarus, come out. We, we just, oh my goodness. And then like, Paul, you got to remember, I'm a hardcore fisherman. My father's a fisherman. My grandfather's a fisherman. My great-great-grandfather's a fisherman. I mean, I grew up on the water and there was this storm and honestly, we were dying and he's sleeping in the boat and we're really sort of angry about it. And he gets up and boom, and the done. What? And then we go across and there's this man who's got 6,000 demons in him and within a matter of minutes, every single one of them leaves him and he's in the right mind. I mean, it was just incredible. But Paul, like, I was there at the court and he told me I would do this and I denied him three times and then he was murdered and we were in an upper room. You got to understand this. We were so afraid and so depressed. And Judas committed suicide and it was done. We were done. And we're in this room and this, the door's locked and we're just depressed and waiting basically to be killed ourselves. And he walked through the wall and sat with us and ate fish. And I hugged him. He was there. It was so incredible. And then later he looked at me and he forgave me and he commissioned me. Can you imagine Paul saying, oh man, do I get it? But it's not just Peter and Paul. Paul, it says in the next verse, didn't meet with any of the other apostles. But he went to meet with only one. James. James is one of Mary and Joseph's kids. One of Jesus' half-brothers. He later, of course, becomes the head of the Jerusalem church, but he was not a follower of Jesus his whole life. Actually, Paul's story and James' story are absolutely paralleled. If you read the book of Mark twice, it says that the majority of Jesus' family was against Jesus, including James, and thought he was insane. 
Mark 3.21, when his family heard about what Jesus was saying, they went to physically take charge of Jesus. And this is what they said about Jesus. He is out of his mind. Oh, James didn't believe his half-brother. They weren't seekers. He thought his half-brother was crazy and a liar or demon-possessed, and they were angry and they were afraid because he was stirring up all this crap and actually could get him killed and them killed. I mean, it took years. Jesus' life, James didn't believe. Jesus' miracles, did not believe. Jesus' teaching, did not believe. When Jesus died, James, I'm sure, just said, well, that's it. He got what he deserved. He was crazy, and I told you it was going to happen. Only when James physically ran into and encountered his crucified, dead half-brother and sat with him and touched him, did James believe? Oh, did James believe because he got seduced by some argument or he was high? Are you joking me? Oh, no, no, there was an advantage for James becoming a Christian. No, there weren't. They were getting knocked off and murdered and jailed. Oh, no, he suddenly had a, no, nothing. He was a hardcore skeptic, did not believe his brother, lived with him, grew up with him, saw everything and did not believe. The only time he believed is when he sat and went, oh, my goodness, how are you back from the dead? So do you notice? Paul meets with Peter and James and gets the whole story from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus to the resurrection of Jesus. They are the ones that fill in the whole story. I assure you, verse 20, (laughs) before God, what I'm writing you is no lie. Oh, and then I went to Syria and Sicilia and we're like, I don't need your travelocity details, Paul. Like, why is that in there? Uh, That's like saying I went to the GTA. That's like saying I went to Durham. Why? This is Paul's hometown. This is where Tarsus is. So after all this, he goes back to his family and his friends and his synagogue and all his crew, and he says, just so you know, I was wrong, and you're all wrong too. And you need to come home. Well, he ends this part really interestingly. He says, look, I was personally unknown to the churches." of Judah that are in Jesus, back around Jerusalem. They've only heard this report that the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. So even the churches, ready, that I used to try to destroy, even the churches that are filled with people who actually walked with Jesus and heard Jesus and saw him teach, but also saw him after he was risen from the dead, oh, they believe I've been called. So here's, here's the moment, ready? If Peter's got my back, and James has got my back, and the original churches have got my back, so who's the false teacher in this situation? Me or them? Careful what you believe and careful what you eat. The package looks the same, but it's different. Question. I mean, there's obviously what does the Scripture say, but what does the Holy Spirit in this moment, in this time, trying to speak out of this amazing book to us. One, there is power in your personal story of how you've encountered Jesus if you are a follower of Christ. Oh, it doesn't matter when you met him. Let me again undo this. Whether you met Jesus at three or five or 20 or last week at Alpha, it does not even matter if you know the exact moment or not. It does matter who you talk about. It doesn't matter if you were a nice person 
who suddenly realize even niceness doesn't save you. It doesn't matter if you're a former drug dealer. When you share with another person what Jesus did and what he has done in your life, there is power. This is who I was and this is who I am because I've encountered Jesus Christ and he's forgiven me. By the way, don't be afraid to share your story. Don't worry about arguing or proving it or trying to have all the answers. You can say to a family member or a friend, I'm not just a cultural Christian. I'm a Christian. I've encountered Jesus. Here's the difference he's made in my life. Listen, I met Jesus at three years old with my mom because of the influence of a Sunday school teacher. There is just as much power in my story as there is in someone who came from a dark life of drug dealing. Why? Because both of us needed what? Rescue. And both of us can point back to Jesus and say, isn't he what? Good. By the way, when you share your story, if you're not sharing your story, you need to begin. And, and when you do, make sure your story doesn't have more power than Jesus. The point of the story is not, oh, let me tell you about my epic historic life. Oh, and by the way, Jesus. No, no, Jesus. There's more. There's a lie in many of our heads. The world tells us this. Our experience absolutely enforces it. The devil whispers to us, and our own heart wonders a lot, and it's this. It's the lie that God can't actually save some people we know. I remember a long time ago hearing the United Church of Canada was talking about removing the phrase, a wretch like me, from the old hymn Amazing Grace. And my heart sunk, because by doing that, they would gut the truth of John Newton's story and our story. Let me share his story again with you. In 1725 in London, he was born to a Puritan mother and a stern sea captain of a father. John, at six and a half years old, came home to find that his mother had died. By the age of 11, his father had taken him out to sea. After many voyages and a reckless youth of drinking, which is a nice way of saying he partied hard, Newton was enforced into the British army, impressed. Uh, that's a basic form of slavery. You had no choice. After attempting to desert, he hated it so much, he was actually received eight dozen lashes and reduced in rank. Later, he was serving on a slave ship. So, oh, the, the story gets worse. And Newton didn't get along with the crew. In other words, I want you to catch this. The men who are running a slave ship, who are inherently vicious and cruel, could not stand him because he was that much of a jerk. And so what do they do? They so hate him, they leave him in West Africa and abandon him. And they give him over to a guy named Amos. And Amos is a slave trader. And Amos has married an African princess named African P. And she is given Newton as a slave. So this woman who's of African origin from West Africa has her own slaves from her own community and has him and treats them brutally. His father in 1748 sends a rescue party and he's rescued. And as he's coming back to England, he almost dies in a storm where he cried out to God and said, if you save me, I'll change. He, stops, he starts reading his Bible, he stops drinking, he stops sleeping around, but not everything changes. He, he actually becomes a slave trader. After he encounters God, he, he actually becomes the captain of a slave ship, not one, actually two, and runs multiple runs to Africa, stealing people and killing them. Now, he treats them differently, by the way. We know that most other slave, slavers did at the time. He was more humane, but still. 
But the closer he got to Jesus, the more he realized everything he was involved in was evil. He abandoned it all. He became one of the greatest opposers to slavery. He became an Anglican preach and a priest and spent the rest of his life preaching the gospel of Jesus. Now watch this. This boy at seven lost his mom. His dad is abusive. The guy spends his years drinking, partying, and doing all the sexual stuff. The abused boy becomes an abuser. The man is a slave himself, not once or twice, then becomes a slaver. He is rebellious, he is lost, and then he meets Jesus. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved what? A wretch like me. Do you know what's written on his tomb? John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, which meaning a guy who lived like hell. <laughs> a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed, listen, to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. C.S. Lewis, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, talks about one of his early amazing teachers named Kirkpatrick. The boys in the class called him the Great Knock. He was a brilliant logic teacher. He was profound in argumentation, and he had all these young men around him, and he spent his life teaching these young men to be the best thinkers they could be, to break down arguments. But he was also a militant atheist, and he evangelized every single one of these young men, not only into the logic but into the cause of atheism so this religion thing could throw, be thrown out. Years later, C.S. Lewis would smile and laugh and say, isn't God interesting? In chapter 9 of Surprised by Joy, he said, God in his sovereignty knew what I was going to become. And he used the great knock to teach me logic and used the great knock to teach me argumentation so I would become one of the best thinkers of Christianity in the 20th century to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. There is not one person that you know that is too far from God. The very first sermon I ever preached in this church, I was 22 or 23. We didn't have this site yet. We were in a warehouse space. I had 25 teenagers and the very first sermon I ever preached here was this. I asked every teenager who I did not know, you tell me the person in your life you know will never meet Jesus Christ. Oh, my friend's a Satanist. Oh, my friend's a Wiccan witch. Oh, my friend's an agnostic or atheist. Oh, my, my dad will never come because he used to go to church and got hurt. By it. And on and on it went. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 20 stories later. I said, do you feel the impossibility in the room? And then I said, but what you do not yet know as young teenagers is this. You do not understand the power of God the Father's call. You do not understand the profound work of Jesus Christ, and you definitely do not know the power of the Holy Spirit yet. Think about the three characters. Saul, profound intellect, violently religious, thought he was doing God's work. A thought leader with power. James grew up in the family, 
wanted nothing to do with it. And Peter, the prodigal, who had been faithful for a long time and rejected it one, two, or three times. Let me tell you, there's not one thought leader in your life. There's not one boss that you have that is a profound thinker who thinks they're doing right things for the world that God cannot save. There is not one relative or child that you have that actually has seen the deal and said, I'm out, that God cannot reach back. There is not one prodigal that cannot come home. God is bigger than all three of these characters. He's bigger. And the lie that many of you are believing is it is over and it's not going to happen and the devil's too strong and their lack of faith is too big and they're sick. Yes, of course it is. That's why you need to go back in fervent prayer before God and say, you, oh God, when you call someone, when you open a door, no one can close it. When Jesus shows up in a life, no one can shut him down. And when the Holy Spirit shows people their sin and their worldliness and their reality and bondage to the devil, oh, they'll cry out for a Savior and the Spirit will take them to Jesus and Jesus will take them to the Father and salvation will come. The Holy Spirit, I've been praying for you all week as a community and I've been saying, God, I want you to start systematically bringing up into people's mind a person, a relative, a boss, a friend, an enemy that they have believed will never encounter Jesus. And then begin to teach them to pray in a new way again. Some of you listening to me today, you are James. You're you're related to the cray-cray Christian and you want nothing to do with it. Or you're Peter, the one who once was and no longer is. Or you're the great thinker, a thought leader, or incredibly influenced, or, or an influencer. Let me just say, what I give you today is not of human origin. This is the gospel of Jesus for you. The Father and the Son agreed to save you because they love you. We are all marked by sin and self-trust, worldliness, and the devil has you in bondage whether you believe it or not. And we all can agree that death is 100% guaranteed. But the good news of Jesus is Jesus came back for you. He actually came back from the dead. You will be given the gift of grace and peace that comes only through Jesus. He will rescue you from your sin. He will rescue you from worldly thinking in any form. He will rescue you from the devil. He has overcome all of it, and he will break the fear of death in you. And the underlining theme that is so incredibly beautiful and offensive is you can't earn this, buy this, steal this, or argue this. God just gives it. Human potential is not enough. Being nice is not enough. Being deeply religious in any form is not enough. Being mindful is not enough. Being spiritual is not enough. Having an amazing exercise regimen is not enough. Your friends are not enough. Your education is not enough. Your business or influence or achievement is not enough. Your sacrifice is not enough. Your attempt to make the world a better place is not enough. Your your drive for social justice, it's not enough. The sacrifices you've done for family is not enough. Every human being needs a rescue beyond their own ability. That is why Saul, who later became Paul, uttered these words. It is by grace that you get saved through faith in Jesus. This is never from yourself. This is always a gift of God. So it's not by works, so no one gets to brag or boast. It's grace alone, faith alone, and the work of Jesus alone. And God calls you, and he opens your eyes, and he invites you home. By the way, as I end, God doesn't love you because you're moral. God doesn't see your inherent value because you're kind or religious. And the opposite is also true. God does not not love you because you're rebellious or evil or involved in dark things. He loves you because he's love. This week I saw this post that I think brings it maybe home. 
Religion says I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. The gospel says I messed up. I need to call my dad. Do you see the difference? Actually, don't just say religion. The world in all of its forms say that. What I give you is not of human origin. It is of God. All of God's servants like Saul, who became Paul, James, Peter, 2,000 years of pastors and leaders like myself, we all come and go. But this message is not from us. It is of heaven. So across all of our church at all of our sites, could we stand and let us pray three things. First, one, thank you, Jesus, that you died and rose again. And we say in this church, amen, you are alive. Thank you that you did not leave us to our own devices. Thank you, Lord, that you rescued us and you love us. So thank you. Lord, I pray that more and more people would have Holy Spirit-inspired courage to share their story. Two, Lord, I pray you'd send the Holy Spirit to put into people's minds the uncle, the brother, the, the son, the daughter, the friend, the colleague that will never, ever come home and begin to reverse that story like you did with Saul, James, and Peter. And we pray in faith that Lord Jesus, because of your sovereignty in this church, in the next five years, people will be in baptisms tanks saying, I was Saul, I was James, I was Peter, and I've encountered him. Lastly, if you are a person who has never embraced the good news of Jesus, you are James, Peter, or Saul, and you know this moment is taking place. Like as I'm speaking, you're like, oh no, this is happening. Here's what you pray. Jesus Christ, I believe you came. I believe God sent you. I believe you actually died. I actually believe you rose from the dead. And you died to rescue me from my sin. I admit to you, God of heaven, I am a sinner. And I need rescue. So I'm going to humble myself by saying I need help. And I need you to forgive me of my sins, set me free from death and pain and bondage and all the stuff, intellect, pride, that I've trusted in, religion, spirituality, my own achievement. And I just say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Jesus, make God my Father. Jesus, be my Savior. Holy Spirit, move in. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in this church, and thank you for what you're doing around the world. Keep bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. All glory be to God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. 